morning. Great to see you all. Welcome to Trinity Heights Church. It's actually really great to see a few new faces here this morning. So if you happen to be joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here as we jump into our second part of the sermon series, Thoughts on Church, a series exploring why Sunday after Sunday we deliberately gather here to worship alongside each other as a community. And on top of that, why we here specifically at Trinity Heights Church gather to worship as a community of Christians and skeptics. So just a quick recap. Last week we focused on the Christians and skeptics bit and why we truly believe that doubt doesn't disqualify you from coming to church and being fully immersed in this community. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he went out of his way to collaborate with believers and unbelievers alike. Jesus' own community, his disciples, his close friends, his family, and the crowds that followed him were in fact the very first community of Christians and skeptics. They wrestled like we do and felt the same intermingled love, joy, pain, faith, and doubt that we all feel. We looked at the story of Simon Peter who denied Jesus three times and then snuck away leaving his teacher to be tried and executed. And we saw that Jesus, after his resurrection, actually goes out of his way to restore that broken relationship. Jesus meets Simon Peter on a beach, builds a fire by hand, cooks some fish, all with the sole intent of sharing a meal and meeting Simon Peter in his doubt, essentially handing his faith back to him. We also looked at the story of Doubting Thomas, who asked for physical proof of Jesus' resurrection, saying, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and the scar on his side, and I'm actually able to physically touch them, I won't believe. And again, we see Jesus go out of his way to intervene on Thomas' behalf. Jesus literally teleports himself into the physical space of Thomas' unbelief and presents his scarred body the very proof that Thomas had asked to see. And so we said that when it comes to the territory of doubt, skepticism, and unbelief, there is no scandal because Jesus was not scandalized by unbelief. There's no controversy when it comes to people's loss of faith. There are no passive-aggressive statements like, I'm worried about you or I'll be praying for you. Instead, we see Jesus himself intervene on behalf of people and say simple things like, peace be with you, and ask simple questions like, do you love me? And we said that that's actually what this whole gospel thing, this good news thing, is all about, because this is God with us. Because in the midst of that first community of Christians and skeptics, there was Jesus. He was with them and for them, and in turn wanted them and us to be with and for each other. And that brings us to today's question, because even if you do see yourself as being a Christian or a skeptic this morning, it's all well and good that we are here worshiping on a Sunday morning, but that's only if you buy into this whole church thing. Perhaps meeting like this is deeply meaningful for you, or perhaps there's something about worshiping alongside others that you really find deeply compelling. But of course, there's also all, there's always the chance that you've been dragged here this morning, maybe by a friend, a parent, 
And maybe you don't want to be here at all. Maybe you don't buy into church. And this particular headspace is actually very interesting to me because if we're being completely honest about certain prevailing thoughts on church, we have to come to grips with the fact that our culture and many in our city tend to view weekly religious gatherings as inconvenient and clumsy or simply view them as archaic, outmoded, and outdated. And so the question hangs in the air, why would I go to church? Why would I ever associate myself with something that seems to be so completely out of touch with reality? Why would I be part of something that seems to be unable to relate to the way that I live my life? And these are valid questions. So in light of them, why do we still choose to do this? Why are we here? Why do we do any of this at all? Because it's not like any of this just happens. Everything about this gathering is deliberate. Our setup crew gets here around 8.30 a.m. We lay down these rugs. We set up musical instruments on the stage. We set up all the equipment. We put a slide presentation together, usually a couple days before or last minute if we're really in a hurry. And then we project that same slide presentation up onto this screen that we actually physically put up. We buy pastries. We make coffee. We organize volunteers. We organize the children's church. Someone writes a sermon and practices it over and over again (laughs) and delivers it like I'm doing now. But why? Why all of this work? Why all of this deliberate structure? Why do we do this? Well, I think part of the answer lies here in the present with how we choose to interact in this space with the people around us and how these interactions actually over time begin to shape and change us as individuals. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I think it's important that we look at the past and understand that a big part of the answer to the question, why church, lies in history. Because church gatherings by nature aren't just weirdly deliberate, they're actually very old. So the New Testament scholar Valeria A. Alekin, in his book titled The Earliest History of Christian Gatherings, discusses how 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century Christian communities gathered, and how these gatherings actually closely resembled the cultic and pagan gatherings of the day, in that these were banquet gatherings, a group of people assembled to feast together and share in each other's company with the unified and collective intent of accessing the supernatural and touching the divine. However, Christian banquet gatherings were fundamentally different to their pagan counterparts. Pagan banquet feasts were held to honor pagan gods, and the revelers gave themselves over to the decadence and drink of the feast, losing themselves in a kind of alcohol and food-fueled religious ecstasy. Christian banquets, on the other hand, had a more deliberate singular focus in that these shared meals were in fact reenactments and echoes of the meals that Jesus himself had shared with others, the loaves and the fishes, the meals shared in the homes of tax collectors and sinners alongside the outcasts of society, the countless meals shared with his disciples, and of course, most importantly, the Last Supper, also known as the Eucharist or Communion. I've heard these meals 
referred to as the food ways of Jesus. And to be sure, Jesus does seem to be obsessed with food and the symbolism of banquets and feasts. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, we see Jesus tell a story about a banquet feast, and the host of the feast prepares the guest list and sends out a lot of invitations, but the honored guests are also wrapped up in their lives, and, and each of them makes an excuse, albeit a privileged excuse, dripping with hints of conspicuous consumption and their own success. I never noticed this before, actually, but when you read the excuses, they're very interesting. I have bought a piece of land, and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. It's almost as if they're saying, my apologies, but I'm too good for you. So the host of the banquet decides to change the guest list last minute and tells his servant, go out into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. Pair this story with the fact that, as I mentioned before, Jesus himself chose to eat with the outcasts of society, and we begin to see a theme emerge in the life and stories of Jesus, specifically one where Jesus goes out of his way to break the hierarchical structures of the day and question prevailing systems of power and privilege. And so when it comes to the imagery of Christian gatherings, banquets and feasts, we begin to see that this is, in fact, the site of a grand reordering. This is the territory of unlikely guests, outsiders being brought in, the poor and the weak being elevated to positions of honor and power, and the rich and powerful being humbled. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be satisfied. As many of you know, I'm an artist, and for the past 14 years, my family and I have lived in New York. In fact, we moved here 14 years ago so that I could paint for a living. And one of the things that I learned early on in the New York art world is that banquets and dinner parties happen all the time. These banquet gatherings or after parties are usually held in honor of one artist on the occasion of the exhibition of their most recent works. These events are typically organized by the museum or gallery hosting the show, and it's their business to pay special attention to each and every detail of the entire event from start to finish. There are rigid guest lists that are checked and double-checked. In some cases, you're even barred from entering until the hosts have made perfectly sure that you are, in fact, who you say you are. Then once inside the venue, the seating arrangements are often tightly controlled, separating VIPs from other people to the point that it's very clear to anyone attending these events exactly how the room has been divided, with the artist always seated at the head table, surrounded by the richest art collectors, the most important curators, and of course the museum and gallery directors themselves. So with the help of seating charts and assigned tables, almost 
every interaction is tightly controlled by limiting people's conversations to the individual seated in front of them and to their immediate right and to their immediate left. In fact, in the art world, if you want to know where you stand, just go to a dinner and see where you've been seated and who you've been granted access to. Because the art world is inherently a network of gatekeepers and a system that works to reinforce hierarchical structures. And it's not just the art world. This is something that we see play out across our city, across professions, across our country and the world. This is a cross-cultural dilemma that exists everywhere because no matter where you go, there are entrenched systems meant to keep people in their place. But when we look at the teachings of Jesus and the way he lived his life, we see that time and again, he dismantles the barriers between people and crushes the hierarchies around him. He was an intellectual, a rabbi, who chose fishermen, a tax collector, and a political anarchist as his disciples. He shared meals with outcasts, and not accidentally either. It wasn't like he just happened to show up there. Jesus was fully aware that who he decided to spend his time with carried weight and meaning. So it's no surprise that the religious leaders of the day were left confused, angered, and even outraged when they saw who Jesus decided to eat with. Jesus was reordering things, meddling with the fabric of society, and ushering in a new kingdom with a new culture and an entirely new value system. And when you take the life of Jesus seriously, you realize that the way he lived counts. The way he lived counts because what he did changed things at their core. And the life of Christ has to shape the way that we live life as a church. Because if it doesn't, then I think we're missing the mark all together. So if we are going to choose to come to church and to meet here on days like this, in the present, it's important that we understand what church is and realize that with the history in mind, with the life of Jesus in mind, this church is in fact a shared banquet space where hierarchies have been dismantled and a grand reordering has already taken place. This church is a space where power and authority comes in the form of service. This is a space where identities, professions, cultures, ethnicities, opinions, and political leanings don't divide us. Because this church is a space of unity before agreement, where we share in the peace of Christ immediately and instantaneously, just because we decide to be together. And so we share in this collective space here in this room and as a community understand that as we share meals together in each other's homes, coffee and croissants here on a Sunday morning, and of course, most importantly, as we share in communion together, we are reminded that as we eat and sustain our own individual bodies, we are actually eating together and collectively sustaining the body of Christ. And that brings us to our particular passage that Matthew read for us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, titled, One Body with Many Parts. And here we see the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, describing quite vividly exactly how followers of Christ should relate to each other within the context of gathered communities. 
And it's a very fleshy, intimate picture, to be sure, as Paul proceeds to compare individual members of the collective Christian church to specific body parts. And growing up, I remember in Sunday school, teachers using this passage to say things like, see, we should all work together, projecting a kind of mechanical quality onto this passage as if they were making sure that we didn't take Paul's analogy too far. We were like body parts, yes, but actually more like cogs in a machine or parts of a car. Looking back now, there seems to have been an underlying intent to downplay the fleshiness of this whole passage. Because to view this passage as being purely mechanical is one thing, all the individual parts working together. But then we miss out on the fact that Paul seems to be using the image of one shared body to communicate previously unheard of levels of intimacy, specifically an intimacy that we share with each other and with Christ. It's amazing because even the limits of physical intimacy between a pregnant mother and her child are defined by something called the blood placental barrier, a layer of cells known as the trophoblastic epithelium where even at its thickest is only ever 0.000157 inches thick. <laughs> and as small as that may be, that's still the amount of space separating the mother's blood from the baby's, physically defining them as distinctly individual beings. All to say that when Paul says we are all part of the same body as the body of Christ, he's referring to levels of intimacy that actually don't even exist in physical reality. He's essentially saying you don't get any more intimate than this because within the body of Christ exists an intimacy that transcends physical intimacy. The collective identity of the body of Christ eclipses our contemporary understandings of rugged individualism and self-sufficiency. This is an intimacy that allows us to rest and to breathe in each other's company. This is an intimacy that allows us to say that no idea or identity will ever get in the way of me loving the person in front of me. So with all of this in mind, then we continue to meet together. We continue to do church together because here now, in the present, in this room, this is where we begin to exercise atrophied muscles. And now you're wondering, what the heck am I talking about? Atrophied muscles. But you see, in a city and culture that encourages self-sufficiency and pushes us to embrace success and rewards us for shaping ourselves into streamlined units of the economy, it's only a matter of time until we begin to view most human relationships as means to an end, and our muscles of generosity, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in this environment can begin to wither. And so we come to church because living in a community and gathering together actually shapes and changes who we are. This is a space where we get to practice a rare relational fluency and exist counter to the prevailing postures around us. This is where instead of relying on knee-jerk reactions of anger, impatience, and selfishness, we actually begin to develop the knee-jerk reaction of peace, a default mode of patience, a posture of generosity. Because of the way we've been shaped by church and the relationships here in this space, 
we realize that even when we're pushed to our limits in the middle of our crazy schedules and the chaos of our city, we find that we're able to rest in the muscle memory of love. 